what was so pure about it in that moment is they had no idea that it was going to become this commercial juggernaut that it is today. They were doing it because it was something that made them feel good, something that they could do for free, and something that they could be inventive about. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Hip-hop dominates the music world. For the past five years, according to Nielsen's measurements, U.S. listeners have listened to more hip-hop slash R&B than any other type of music. Author Jonathan Abrams, a Charlotte resident by way of Southern California, spent years talking to the foundational figures of hip-hop, including some who date all the way back to its very beginnings nearly 50 years ago. Abrams turned those interviews into a new book called The Come Up, An Oral History of the Rise of Hip-Hop. It's a fascinating look not just at the birth of hip-hop, but its continual rebirth as new artists find new ways to stretch its boundaries. Abrams is a boundary stretcher himself. His day job is writing sports features for the New York Times, but he's also written an oral history about the TV show The Wire. In hip-hop, as in The Wire, all the pieces matter. And Jonathan Abrams knows how to put them together. Here's our conversation. Jonathan Abrams, you talk in the introduction about this book about your introduction to hip-hop. Could you sort of tell that story? Yeah, I grew up in Southern California in the late 80s and the early 90s. And I, was, I just missed that whole NWA explosion but I was a little bit cognizant for Snoop Dogg and Doggy Style and for Dr. Dre's A Chronic when that came out and hip-hop music was starting to reach mainstream. But the artist who really, really started stirring my imagination at an early age was Tupac Shakur. And growing up, he was a person who just showed me the full dualities of being a young African-American male that I wasn't necessarily getting in school or, or other places. He showed me the extremes he could be he could go scorch earth or he could be a poet and endearing and he was just everything. And I grew up in one of those households where my mom was like, don't have any of that hoppity hip stuff in our house. <laughs> <laughs> and I had brought one of, it was Tupac's third, third CD, Me Against the World. And she took one look at the parental advisory sticker and made me, it was must have been Circuit City or, or Radio Shack or one of those now defunct stores. And made me take it back, but I, I found some type of way, and I was you know, maybe like 11 or 12, to, to get it again. And that was, a, that was a pull of hip-hop for me, and specifically Tupac. When I was young, me and my mama had beef, 17 years old, kicked out on the streets. Though back at the time, I never thought I'd see a face. Ain't a woman alive that could take my mama's place. So you had like the secret copy that you just... Kept under the bed or something? Oh, yeah. This time I had to hide it a little bit better. <laughs> so the history of hip-hop is a massive subject going back, you know, 50 years. How did you even begin to figure out sort of how to put your arms around it? You know, what's funny is you're saying that, and I have a specific memory of when I was just starting this project, and I was I think I was talking to you about it, and I could see, like, the little glimmer of doubt <laughs> <laughs> In your eyes as I was trying to explain it to you. I, I just had a vision, and I didn't know how that vision was going to play out. 
I didn't have a background in hip hop reporting, but I knew that I knew that I had journalism skills and I had faith in my ability to get to people and just telling the history of hip hop music is massive. No one book can get all of it into it, but I knew that I could be able to tell the story of hip hop through the eyes of the people who I talked to. And that's the book that came out of that. And you did what, 300 interviews, something like that? Yeah, just about 300. Yeah. What was the, what was the hardest giver you were? What was the most you went through to track somebody down? There's some funny stories because, you know, number one, hip hop artists, they don't necessarily work nine to five, right? So I had to have my phone <laughs> on at all times of, of the night. Uh, my wife, I apologize to her because sometimes <laughs> I'm waking her up to go do an interview really early in the morning. And then asking artists or producers to tell me their life story and their, their life in hip hop for a book that's going to come out in four or five years and to talk for free that <laughs> isn't going to have the best uh, or greatest response rate. There was one person I, I talked to who his publicist said, okay, he'll talk to you for free for 20 minutes, but if it's one minute higher than that, it's $500. <laughs> and I remember having a, a clock on my phone and I was watching the time and I was almost trying to hurry up and get him because he was talking a little bit longer and I was like, right when we hit the 20 minutes, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> and then it, it may have been like 22 minutes uh of the interview and afterwards the publicist was like, well, we had a deal, you know, it was $500 and I was thankfully able to talk her out of it. But that, that was one of the things there was one person on Twitter who he responded to a DM maybe three years after I asked him for an interview, three years, three years. Like, like I had just, and, and, and did he, was there any indication that any time had passed or he was like, Oh, what's up? No, no. It was just like I had sent it earlier in the afternoon <laughs> and uh, it was unfortunately too late to get it into the book, but it was it was stuff like that. Hip hop kind of moves at its own rhythm and its own pace, but that's what made getting the interviews that I did get for the book so worthwhile. So getting somebody like DMC or Ice Cube or Ice T, whenever I could pick their brains and be able to talk to them about their careers and their legacies and their impact and what inspired them, those were the things that really elevated me and gave me the gas to keep going on this. I think most of us of a certain age, like at my age, we when we think about sort of the beginnings of rap, you know, or hip hop, I think of rapper's delight. I said the hip hop, the hip it, the hip it, the hip hip hop, you don't stop the rockin' to the bang bang boogie, say up jump the boogie to the rhythm of the boogie to beat. You know, you trace the sort of amino acids of hip hop, I guess, way before that. So kind of, can you give like a kind of concise history about the the very beginnings of hip hop? Yeah, so hip-hop started in the Bronx in the early 1970s. And if you think back to that time, there's a lot coalescing in that area. You have a lot of decay going on. Uh, programs are being cut for kids. There's not too much hope that these kids are being offered. In the meantime, disco is really popular. And the kids that do have money, they're going downtown from the Bronx to see these acts like Patti LaBelle and popular disco acts. So they're basically leaving behind this really disadvantaged population of youth. This DJ named Cool Herc, he moves into the area from Jamaica, and he's really lucky because at that point, the price of DJing is, is really, really high, right? It costs lots and lots of money to get all this equipment, but it's, it also costs a lot of money to be able to store this equipment. You need to have space, and, and the Bronx people don't have space. So he, he kind of hits the lottery, and he has both. And he's also been experimenting 
with this new DJing technique where he's extending these breakbeats, the repeated drum sample of a song. And in 1973, he throws a party for his sister, Cindy. It's a back-to-school fundraiser. And at this party, he introduces his new DJing technique. And breakdancing at that time is just becoming popular. All the the B-boys and the B-girls, they love this new technique because they can breakdance longer. Their, Their favorite parts of the songs are extended. So that's going on. Then at the same time, a little bit in other areas of the Bronx, you have another DJ named Africa Bombada who's taking all these elements and forming them into what he calls a hip-hop culture. He has breakdancing, lyricism, DJing. And then also right in the Bronx, you have another DJ, Grandmaster Flash, who's kind of taking what Bombada and DJ Cool Herc is doing and elevating it into a different type of artistry. He has something what he calls a quick mix theory, where basically the breaks never stop. You can go from turntable to turntable and keep it going exponentially. So those are the three really foundational DJs that get hip hop going in the Bronx. And you delve into in, in quite a bit into a, a story that I had had heard for a long, long time, never knew whether it was real or true or in between. And you kind of tell all sides of it. The, the idea that the New York City blackout in 1977 was like a key moment in hip-hop history. Could you kind of explain what that story is and kind of what you found out about it? Yeah, so that's in 1977. So it's a few years after Cool Herc has come through with his DJing and the lights go out. It's the summer of Sam. The area is still desolate. People are going into stores, breaking in. They're getting necessities, right? They're getting toilet paper and cereal for their kids and whatever they can. They see a moment of opportunity. But at the same time, There's also this other group of kids who are breaking into electronic stores and getting DJing equipment. And because, like I mentioned earlier, the price of entry into DJing is really, really high. So basically, when the lights come back on, somebody may have a mixer, somebody may have a turntable. These groups are, these people are getting together and forming groups based on the equipment they have. I think one person in the book said that after the blackout, it seemed like everybody was a DJ. Now, I will say, like you said, some people kind of discount that that was a complete catalyst in really spring springboarding hip hop. But there's other people who were there who actually did what I just described on that night who don't do not discount that as a propeller for the genre. You, you said at the beginning that you didn't go into this as a hip hop scholar. I'm certainly not a hip hop scholar. And I, I found myself sort of amazed, in the, especially in the early parts of the book. And how many times somebody mentioned this as like, here's a key track, here's a really important part of the history, and I had never heard it before, never heard of it. Did that happen to you a lot, where somebody would mention a, some important historical track and you never heard of it? When I'm writing books, you need to find the topic that you have interest in to really carry you through the years, right? Because it's really it's a solitary, isolating endeavor that you're about to impart on. So I had a lot of interest in hip hop and I was interested in learning a lot more. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book. So just getting ready for it, I probably read about 30 hip hop books. I read almost every hip hop history book I could get my hands on. So I had a good foundational of the tentpole moments and areas I needed to hit going into it that I wasn't necessarily familiar with before I started this. What was it do you think about, and you talk about so many disadvantaged kids in in the Bronx in that area of New York, 
How did hip hop in particular speak to those kids and then to other kids as it started to expand? I think it gave them something of value. It gave them some something to look forward to, something that they could do, something that they could do in front of their peers and see the appreciation of. It was a developing art form. And what was so pure about it in that moment is they had no idea that it was going to become this commercial juggernaut that it is today. They were doing it because it was something that made them feel good, something that they could do for free and something that they could be inventive about. It's so funny because there's a kind of a tension, especially early on in the book, where some of the artists felt like if you made a record, it was almost like selling out. You know, like it was supposed to be a, a, a form of street art and to actually make it commercial and to, you know, try to sell it to people was somehow not true hip hop. Well, yeah, that was the big thing with Rapper's Delight. When Rapper's Delight came out in 1979, there were crews that were established in New York. They were popular throughout the city. They just had never thought of putting this thing on the vinyl because they didn't see it as a new art form that could be on records, that could travel on radio, that was even done outside of New York City. So when Rapper's Delight came out, a lot of them felt like they were more advanced than what was on that song, a hip-hop, the hippie. They were, they were saying more dense rhymes and rapping faster and more clever rhymes. And then Rapper's Delight was so popular that a lot of artists had to almost go back and retrain themselves to become almost more elementary in what they did. And they were, some artists were, were really, really bitter about that fact. You, you lay this book out both sort of chronologically and geographically. Um, certainly at the beginning, it's very New York centric because that's where the music was. You go across to the West Coast as it's starting to flourish out there. About halfway through the book, you start talking about Southern hip hop. And, you know, this is a Southern-focused podcast, so I want to sort of get onto that for a while. Southern hip-hop sort of lagged behind East Coast, West Coast, and that sort of thing. Why do you think that was? There was a coastal bias. I don't think, unlike what we see with professional sports or things like that, right? You had the media epicenters in Los Angeles and New York, and back then that's where all the radio companies were as well. There is a very pivotal moment in hip-hop history at the 1995 Source Awards. And a lot of people think that that night is so pivotal because that's the night when Suge Knight goes on stage and basically challenges all of Bad Boy and the East Coast, West Coast division really comes to a forefront after that. But in the book, what I hint at is that, or hopefully don't hint at, but what's explained is that that night was also very, very pivotal because Outkast, the Southern group from Atlanta, won an award for Best New Rap Group. And when they got on stage at Madison Square Garden, they were booed, and they were booed loudly. And Andre 3000 gets on stage, and he says, the South got something to say. And that one statement right there, that became a huge rallying cry, not just for Atlanta to rise up, but for Louisiana, for Florida, for all these other regions, Memphis, to really be introspective and support one another and come up in hip hop. And I don't think that there's any coincidence that in the few years after 1995, you see somewhere like Atlanta arguably become hip hop's epicenter now and supplant New York, New York. I may be overstating this, but I feel like that sort of regional pride in music is especially strong in hip hop, you know, and rock music, there is like Southern rock and there is sort of, you know, surf sounds like the Beach Boys and stuff. 
but it feels like in hip hop there's so much pride and you know almost defiance in in each regions sort of standing up for themselves do you think that comes where do you think that comes from well i think what's interesting about hip-hop is that as it spread throughout the country it didn't just spread as the new york hip-hop right it became popular and different regions interpreted it differently so you have gangster rap coming out in los angeles you have slow chopped down music coming out in houston You have bass booty shaking music in Miami coming out. So all these different regions are interpreting hip hop differently and coming out with different type of music. And what's popular there is going to be unique to that different region. So I think that goes into it a lot as well. Yeah. And I think especially early on, I guess, you know, if you were in New Orleans or Memphis or wherever, you might not even be hearing much coming out of New York. So you, you might just have one or two records that you're like, kind of basing your understanding of what the music is on and and it kind of takes off from there, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of what comes out as popular in a different region is how people live in that region. So, for example, Los Angeles, people are riding around in their cars. They can listen to music. They have the windows rolled down. You're going to have the, the BPM slower, whereas somewhere in Miami, you're in a club and you're sweating and the music is loud and you can... You can't even make out what they're saying. You're just feeling the music. So I think that that has something to do with the different kind of subgenres that are developing as hip hop is growing as well. When we come back, Jonathan Abrams talks about how to construct an oral history. And in my head, I wanted people to feel like these legends are setting together all in a room and they're bouncing their thoughts and reflections off of each other. And one is leading into a next. That and more ahead on Southbound. Hey, this is Tommy. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Jonathan Abrams. I think everybody knows Outkast. Everybody who listens to hip-hop, hip-hop knows Outkast from Atlanta. They might also know, you know, Ludacris, Killer Mike from Run the Jewels, those sort of Atlanta uh, kind of hip-hop stars. Who are some of the, like, forefathers of Southern hip-hop? People who... You know, folks might not know about, but might want to go back and listen to. So really, you have Outcast production team is huge at that moment, organized noise. And then you have a group like Goody Mob, who came out right on the hills of Outcast. Uh, but Goody Mob was really, really influential in Atlanta. And even before that, you had guys like Mojo and Raheem and other guys come out. 
that really helped to establish Atlanta and put it on the map. And at the nearly the very beginning, a guy named MC Shidi, who used to be around with Africa Bombada as he was growing up in New York, was really somebody who came and transplanted that New York style hip hop to Atlanta. So the uh, Southern rapper Bun B from Houston, part of UGK, you, you have not quoted in your book as saying, Southern hospitality is a trait for many of us here. There's an easygoingness about our lifestyle, our character, our demeanor that people relate to. It's very personable. And he talks about that as a reason that sort of Southern hip-hop was embraced. Do you sense that when you hear the music at all? Because I know a lot of Southern hip-hop goes really hard, but do you feel that kind of overall sense? I think there's different strands and different elements. I think he was also getting it at that point was that for a while, a group like UGK was trying to convince these coastal record executives that their music could be consumed by people everywhere, not just in the South, that they were, were worthy of being listened to everywhere. And once that kind of Southern explosion hit in the early 2000s where music from Houston really, really became popular, it kind of validated what Bun B and others were saying about music from the region. In the span of your book, we've gone for a point where I think you quote one of the early New York DJs is saying everything about early hip hop was illegal. You know, they had to plug into the lamppost to get the turntables to work. They had parties they didn't get permits for, all this sort of thing. And we've come up to the point where the last Super Bowl, the halftime show was, you know, like Snoop Dogg. Um, This would be the time in like rock music history when the critics would start saying, well, rock music's dead, you know, it's stagnant, it's over, we need a new thing. And that's, I think, part of why hip-hop became a big part of the music in America is because people thought they needed something new. Do you get a sense after 50 years of hip-hop that there's, like, stagnation going on, or do you do you still hear lots of freshness? One thing that I love about hip-hop is that it's always going to be in the hands of the youngest generation because that's the generation that's going to mold it and come up with the new trend and hip hop keeps reinventing itself led by that younger generation. I don't think it's still, but the music I listen to, am I going to listen to Lil Baby or Lil Uzi Vert or whoever is the most popular artist out there today? No, but I can understand that this generation that's growing up right now their classics are being produced, and this is the music that they're going to listen to way down the road, and I think it's going to keep changing over and, and churning over, and that's what's really unique about hip-hop. I'm not going to ask you, you, you talked about what you were listening to. I'm not going to ask you to give your, like, Mount Rushmore or anything. Uh, you, you can. I don't well, think I, my I, Mount Rushmore is, is... All right, let's hear it then. I don't, I don't think it's controversial. I probably have the most non-controversial <laughs> Mount Rushmore ever. <laughs> so I'll give you my top five artists. Tupac, of course. Notorious B.I.G. Jay-Z. From standing on the corners popping to driving some of the hottest cars New York has ever seen. For dropping some of the hottest verses rappers ever heard. From the dope spot with the smoke block clinging the murder scene. You know me well. Nas. Life. Take me under. I don't know. I'm at the 
smoking weed in the street without cops harassing. Imagine going to court with no trial. Lifestyle cruising blue behind the waters. No welfare supporters. More conscious of the way we raise our daughters. Days and rock him. When it's ugly, then the club is lovely. Dogs be sipping Hennessy and bubbly to my comrade to keep it flaming hot on dangerous blocks. Claiming spots where the goal is to That's a pretty solid top five. I want to ask uh, one question about. I don't know how else to say it, but sort of cultural appropriation. You know, hip-hop, of course, started out as almost 100% African-American music. And we've had this sort of evolution where certainly a lot of the fan base is now white, and many of the artists are. And I think there is a feeling that there are a few white hip-hop artists who are sort of understood to be really good. Like Eminem, most people, I think, say Eminem's pretty good. There are others, including lots of Grammy-winning hip-hop artists who are white, who people feel like maybe they wouldn't be there if they were black. They wouldn't be getting all these awards. What is your sense from having talked to all these artists about a wide range of subjects, how they feel about basically white people in hip-hop? I mean, I think that's the whole give and take with artistry versus commercialization, where the greater masses who are going to be consuming it are going to be the ones who are buying the music and they're probably going to be the people who look like whoever the artist is the most, right? So it's it's tough, and I don't know if there's a, a straight answer. I will say that, you know, as, as somebody who has grown up on hip-hop and really loves it to my core that, I hope that consumers can see the artists who are doing it for the right reasons and not just necessarily for the lowest common denominator to make a quick buck or to become famous. I think that that stuff isn't eternal, right? I don't think that stuff is going to be what's long lasting. At least I hope not. You know, if you want to look at rap history, somebody like Vanilla Ice was more of a flash in the pan than somebody who was long lasting, like a Chuck D or somebody along those lines where I think if you're saying something and if you mean something, that stuff is going to be eternal and the rest of the stuff is going to wa- hopefully wash away. You did another oral history book on The Wire. I'm just wondering how these two books compare in terms of the research you had to do, the work you had to do, the difficulty in tracking people down, all of it. Yeah, The the Wire oral history was a piece of cake compared to this one. <laughs> It's it's a really contained world, right, where at the beginning I wrote a really impassioned email to David Simon saying I wanted to do it. And once I got his okay, I basically knew that I would be in the clear. And the casting director of that show, Alexa Fogel, really saw value in the book and helped put me in touch with a lot of people because, you know, she can cast you in a show. You're not going to not respond to her. So I had almost like a cheat code to do that book. This one, there is no one person who is in charge of hip-hop and can lead me to all the most important people I need to, to talk to. So it was almost replicating it over and over and over again, where sometimes I could talk to the people I was trying to get in touch with, and sometimes I couldn't. But what I'm really thankful for is that this book doesn't include people, at least quotes from people on the some of the Mount Rushmore, somebody like Nas or somebody like Rakim, but I feel like their stories have been really well told. 
I felt fortunate to be able to talk to people who had a really big influence on hip hop who maybe aren't as well known. Somebody like Edwin Fletcher, who helped co-write The Message, which was a really groundbreaking song out in 1982. People like Monica Lynch and Ann Carley, two really big leading female executives back in hip-hop's early days who were influential influential in signing people like Queen Latifah and Will Smith and a host of others. What are the, do you see as uh, both somebody who's written it and somebody who's a reader of these things, sort of the advantages and disadvantages of that oral history format? Having written books both traditionally and this is my second oral history book, to me oral histories are tougher because you need to rely on, on quotes from people to move the book. And in my head, I wanted people to feel like these legends are setting together all in a room and they're bouncing their thoughts and reflections off of each other and one is leading into a next. And in order to do that, you need to have really good interviews and you need to be able to lay it all out in a process that makes sense. Whereas when you're writing a traditional book, you can have everything in your head. And if you don't have that killer quote, you can write a really good transition to get you from point A to point B. In your in your day job, when you're not writing all these books, uh, you write sports features for the New York Times. You're talking to a lot of young black athletes. And I, I wonder whether you feel like it's an advantage for you to know that hip-hop world when a lot of the people you might be talking to are fans or whatever, as opposed to a lot of the older white sports writers who might be hanging out with the same people. Well, you know... <laughs> The funny thing is that when I started my career, my journalism career, I was at the Los Angeles Times, and I was in my young 20s. And that was definitely a really, really advantageous thing to have in my back pocket to be able to talk to people about pop culture that we were both consuming. As I've gotten older, you know, now I'm as old as a lot of the coaches. So (laughs) (laughs) like I said earlier, like the the newest stuff today, I'm not as up on as I used to be back in the day. But, you know, maybe somebody still has listened to, like, the latest Jay-Z verse or something like that. You know, now, if anybody's still in the NBA now who's around my age, they're about to be out of it. I think, <laughs> I think I'm think maybe a couple months. I'm around the same age as LeBron James, and I think Andre Iguodala may have, like, a month. No, Andre Iguodala has about four days on me. We talk about all these we talked about all these regional differences in hip hop in the early days. And part of that was because of how people consume music. You know, they didn't hear something until they got a tape or some DJ played it on the radio or something like that. Now everybody has access to everything. And through Spotify or YouTube or whatever, you can basically listen to anything that's ever been recorded. Do you think that has flattened out at all? Sort of what hip hop sounds like? Or do you think people are still creating like their own little weird pockets? I think there's definitely weird pockets or unique pockets being created. At the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about the price of entry to become a DJ. Now that price of entry because of technology is nothing. You can be a little kid in your bedroom and come up with the anthem of the summer. So I think that's incredible. And I think that's why that churning over and that 
hip hop keeps changing and evolving. That's why it's going to continue to be you know, one of the most widely consumed genres going forward is because you have that ability with the technology. You have kids who don't have a lot who are able to come in and influence this genre. The kind of ending chapter in the book, and I don't think it's titled this way, but it's sort of a series of quotes from people who've been in the in the hip-hop game for a while about sort of what the music means to them. And I wonder if you could also answer that for yourself. As somebody who's listened to it since you were a little kid, um, have been immersed in it all this time, now I've written a book about it. As you said, to, to tackle a book for years is, has to be something you really care about. What what does basically hip-hop mean to you? Yeah, hip-hop has been one of my longest relationships, right? It's something I turn to when I need motivation, when I'm bored, when I want to be unbored, when I want to be enlightened, when I need education, when I'm working out. It's always been this constant ally. I guess hip-hop is still dismissed by, as Will Smith once put it, parents who just don't understand. But there aren't nearly as many of them around anymore because so many newer parents, like Jonathan Abrams himself, have been listening to hip-hop their whole lives. For billions of people worldwide, it's their everyday soundtrack. It's also kind of silly these days to make a blanket statement like, I don't like hip-hop, because so many other types of music have borrowed elements of hip-hop, just as hip-hop borrowed from other genres since its very beginning. In fact, one of hip-hop's greatest contributions is showing how any little snippet of music, any little loop, can be turned into something new and fresh. It's a long story, but a neighbor who lives down the street played a drum lick on a record 40 years ago that turned up on a Kanye West track. He didn't even know who Kanye was, but his music lives on, embedded. And Jonathan Abrams' book shows how hip-hop grew from a couple of New York City parties to something that embedded in the culture nearly all over the world. It's an amazing story. Somebody should write a rhyme about it. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.